Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. My guest today, ESPN front office insider Bobby Marks, and we get into the Jimmy Butler trade sweepstakes with Minnesota, their talks with teams, how they might proceed, how they proceeded so far, Butler's value on the market, and what it means for the league here in the preseason, and the stakes for the teams who are interested in him, who might like to trade for him, and how that could impact July free agency. All that with Bobby Marks. Let's get right to it. Welcome into Bobby Marks, ESPN's front office insider. Bobby, how are you, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. There's, uh, we're taping this on Friday morning. There's another conversation I'd love to have with you on another issue, but we can't have that conversation here. <laughs> Bobby, it is not, it is no. not about all-star voting, all-NBA voting. I would like to have a voting conversation, but we're not going to do that, but we are going to talk about Jimmy Butler and start there. Bobby, you've been on both ends of this working in the Nets front office where you've had to trade star players. They've asked for trades and you've been on the other end where you've tried to acquire star players who had asked for trades elsewhere and tried to do a deal with them. Jason Kidd was probably the most notable that you went through. Rod Thorne was the GM with the Nets at the time you were working in the front office, you know, Jason had already signed the extension with the Nets. He was in the middle of a five-year contract when he said he wanted out. And as I remember, it, that was expedited by a night at Madison Square Garden when Jason sat out a game against the Knicks. Uh, I think there were a lot of questions around the Nets about, I think he said he had a migraine headache. Jason never wanted to miss games at the Garden against the Knicks. or Jason didn't miss many games anyway. And I remember that expedited the deal with Dallas. But what Minnesota's facing here, Bobby, it's been a, over a week since he asked for the trade. Um, history tells you it generally takes time to negotiate out the kind of deal you want to get, that these kinds of deals are hard to do in like a seven to 10 day window or can you get it done that fast that the deals are going to be the same now than than they would be two months from now or a month from now or weeks from now? Well, I think it's extremely rare to get a deal done, and it feels like it's been three months, not a week, since the with, with Jimmy Butler and you know just 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 circling back, you know, with with the kid situation back in um, 2007, you know, Jason, um, you know, did not show up for a game. Uh, exciting a migraine. It was a home game against New York, and that was in de- early December. And he wasn't traded until the deadline in February. So that's three months, um, three months later. And that's how long it took to try to get it the right deal. And eventually we, we got that with Dallas. You know, on the other end, having been part of the, you know, Carmelo Anthony, um, process in 2010, Little similar to, um, to Jimmy Butler, but not as public. Um, Anthony showed up at training camp. You had a new ge- uh, general manager with, uh, Masai. That was the last weekend in, in September and, and that didn't happen in, the trade didn't happen until, um, you know, mid-February. Um, so I would, you know, you look at Minnesota where they are right now. Um, you're, you're not going to get the return back, um, that you traded for him back in, uh, 
June of 17 with uh, the rights to Lori Markkinen and Zach Levine and um, Chris Dunn. Um, you have an owner who has been pretty upfront as far as trying to get something done relatively um, soon here. Uh, you have teams that have started training camp, um, you know, a week ago. Um, and you also have teams that the landscape in the league has changed so much that we were going into, into a summer where half the teams that are going to have cap space and are not willing to give up significant assets to go out and trade for them where they can possibly sign them as a free agent. And I think if you're, if you're Minnesota, you are trying to, to create a, you know, almost like a bidding war between teams that are over the cap coming into next summer, the Miamis of the world, uh, Houston, and try to get in, into a bidding war. And I, you know, we, we, we don't see that happening right now. Um, you know, the next thing will happen, what will happen is if Butler, uh, if there is no deal to be made in, you know, in the next couple of days. And then what happens with Jimmy Butler in, in Minnesota as far as showing up? And that's another issue of like Tom Thibodeau wants him to show up. He wants him to play. He wants to try to win with the group they have. Now, I think it will be a challenge to bring Jimmy Butler back into that locker room. There's a lot of animosity between he and, and their young star players. But I still think Tom Thibodeau feels even with the dysfunction, the fact that they all don't really like each other, don't like playing together. And there were a lot of things said in the offseason and, and even in the lead up after the trade request. I still think Tom Thibodeau thinks his best chance of getting to the playoffs that he can still get to the postseason with these guys. And if he's let go at the end of the season, then he at least can say for his next job, I got Minnesota to the playoffs twice in a row after they missed for 13 straight years. And I think he feels if they make a trade, they're not going to get value back for him now. And even with a dysfunction, who they bring back won't help them in the short term. And that's where you have this separation between you have a president coach and a GM who probably are not going to be there for the long term and yet are going to make a decision that's going to impact this organization for a very long time. And you have an owner who's got to make a decision about how much does he want to how involved should he be in these trade talks? Ultimately, the owner always makes the final decision. But, you know, San Antonio, you know, R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich, they were making a decision on Kawhi Leonard. Just, there's a different investment into that organization, the future, where they stood. They could make a decision that ownership trusted. It's different here in Minnesota, and I think that really complicates this situation. You have a uh, a coach who's also your president. Um, that dilutes a lot of different things there too. It, it is a lot different than, um, doing a trade in, in July. Um, as I say, once you start playing, the, the mindset of that coach is, you know, getting ready for practice, getting ready for the first preseason game, getting ready for the regular season. You know, he is not looking at draft picks and young players that could help in 2019-20. He, he's looking at what can, what's my best option for this team right now and having Jimmy Butler on the team is, is the best option. You're not going to get value back. You're not going to get an all-star back. Um, you know, like, like Jimmy Butler. Um, that, that's the, that's where you're kind of running into a, uh, a, a dead end situation here. And, you know, going, going back to the, the, the Butler situation, I mean, he's going to have, if they, if it gets to the point where they say to him and his, and his representatives, Jimmy, there's no deal on the table. We need you to, to appear or show up. Um, and he says no, 
then you know then the clock starts you know there's a 30 day clock that starts and um you know he'll he'll jeopardize potentially free agency for next summer and then we'll probably see the player association involved and I don't think we'll get there um but that's something to you know to to, to keep to keep an eye on if there is no deal right now because if you are Jimmy Butler and hey we I we interviewed him in um in 2010, I guess, when he was coming out for the draft, you know, uh, his story is well documented as far as bouncing, um, you know, from house to house, um, you know, foster homes, um, you know, had a tough upbringing. And there is a trust level there. If, if, if he is told by ownership that you were going, we are going to trade you. Well, he's, he's, he's waiting for you to get, waiting to get traded now, not in, in, in February. And, and I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic as far as what happens with, uh, as I said before, what happens with Jimmy Butler if there's no deal. And the likelihood is that there, there probably won't be, um, you know, anything relatively soon, at least before their, their first preseason game. Bobby, what, what if he comes back? What if he says, okay, I'm reporting. I'm going to show up to practice. I'm going to show up to the games. But what if he says I'm injured? I've got a nagging. I stubbed my big toe getting out of the shower this morning. What recourse does the team have based on I reported, but I don't feel physically able to play? That's a great question. You know, him reporting is the is the big thing. Him showing up for practice. Um, but yeah, the, you also have you know he's coming off that I guess that minor hand surgery. That's why. You know, they're saying that's where he is, uh, you know, I guess rehabbing that and getting his conditioning back. And you can, there's a, you know, there is the possibility that he could say that I am injured. I, you know, I cannot step on the court. I am not ready to go. And, you know, once you report that, that's, you know, then that clock, that 30 day clock, you know, goes away. And I mean, have we seen it before? I, I've seen it plenty of times that the players that were in trade talks, um, you know, either come up a little bit lame or there is an injury do you question it you mean sometimes you have to trust the player but i think if if that's the case here um and if that happens i think we kind of know what's going on bob when you look at and i think the real interesting part you touched on it was the fact that you have a group of teams who don't have salary cap space next summer who are interested in him would like to bring him in miami houston being two of them you have teams with salary cap space to sign not only one, but two max free agents, the Clippers and the Nets. The Knicks have one max slot. And I think the Knicks so far have stayed on the sidelines on this one. The Nets and Clippers have talked with Minnesota and Minnesota's asking price has been so high. And I think, I think the question for both the Clippers and the Nets is this. One, does getting Jimmy Butler help you get a second star, a bigger star? Does it help you? And I think this is really a question more, maybe a little bit more for the Clippers. Does Jimmy Butler lead to Kawhi Leonard? Does he potentially lead to Kevin Durant? Now, those are big players. And I think Kawhi is more realistic for the Clippers than Durant is. But we'll see how it plays out in Golden State this year and where they are. But at the same time, how many assets do you give up for a player? I think your belief is, well... If we get him now, we secure him, and then we re-sign him this summer, he could get traded somewhere else, and we could still sign him in free agency, but the team that trades for him probably has a leg up in keeping him because they'll have had some sort of an agreement in place when they trade for him because they're giving up assets. Um, but I think for the Clippers and Nets, how much do I give up for a guy who I, number one, can sign in free agency, and then number two, 
do I make myself less attractive to a Kawhi Leonard hypothetically if I'm the Clippers, if I've given up too much of my infrastructure to get Jimmy Butler? I think it's such a fine line and such a, I don't know, maybe a perilous decision for them to really decide how far are we willing to go to get this guy in the door right now. Well, and I think the the Knicks in in 2011 are, are is the perfect um you know, the perfect blueprint as far as you know, we regarding Carmelo, they could have outright signed him in free agency that summer but gave up a ton to get him and really depleted a lot of their depth. Um and they they were a good team, but they were never that that championship team. I I look at Brooklyn um what Sean has been able to do and really grow it from you know, from the bottom, um, and, and now are you willing to kind of jump the shark here and get a Jimmy Butler? If that maybe does that get you another player, possibly? Um, it's a lot of money you're going to have to invest in, in with Butler, 190 million, possibly, on a new contract for a player who minutes um, consistently ranks in the top 10. You know, he's averaged 37 minutes the last um, five or six years here. My concern is, is that. What happens if Jimmy Butler does not like it there for the remaining six or seven months there? Because, yes, you can have a handshake agreement there with the agent and the player there, but there's nothing binding. Um, so now you are, you're recruiting him for, you know, that six or seven, um, six or seven months. And there's no sure shot that you're, he's another player is going to come. So now you are, if you're Brooklyn, if he's your face of your franchise, you have a lot of money invested in. Now you're, Possibly a playoff team, you know, in that maybe that back end, that six to eight range, but that's, that's who you're, you're married to. With the Clippers, you know, you'd have to probably gut some of that young players they've drafted. They've, you know, they've gone away, they had gone away from development. Now they have some really nice young players that they can go out and develop and one or two of those guys would probably have to go. Um, I think it would be interesting because some of those other players, the Tobias Harris's, the Avery Bradley's, um, you know, guys like Lou Williams, possibly. There's a possibility that if the Clippers are going to go get two max players next year, those those two those players won't be there anyway. So I think if you're looking at it from their perspective, is that is that what our mindset is? And I think maybe you become a little bit more aggressive. But it all goes back to, hey, we have the cap space to go out and get this player. If this player really wants to come to Los Angeles or Brooklyn, we can fit him in with room. And really not do much to our roster and draft picks to keep on building this thing. Yeah. And I think w- when you talk about taking risks, the risk of losing Kawhi Leonard, it was, you got a chance to get a top three player in the league and you got him. There's risk a little bit. There was risk with the health. Is he going to be healthy? Is he going to, you know, want to be here for the year? Is he going to be motivated? And so far early on in Toronto, Kawhi has, made a great impression. He has come in very determined to play well this year to help the team win. And, and, you know, obviously he'll figure out free agency as he goes. I understand that risk. Kawhi Leonard is, you know, he's an MVP level player in the NBA. Jimmy Butler is an outstanding player, but he's a level below that and he's older. And I think the question too is this isn't breaking up in Minnesota because he doesn't like Tom Thibodeau. He's always had a good relationship with Thibodeau. Now it's strained as this process plays out and he doesn't get the trade and you'll see become probably more at odds. I think that's starting to happen. But the fact is he credits Tom Thibodeau a great deal with his development as a player. You know, last pick of the first round, 
out of Marquette, uh, who went to Portsmouth in the pre-draft process, was fighting to just be a first-round pick and becomes an all-star, a max player in Chicago. And the fact that if you're another team and you're saying he's walking away from Tibbs, he's walking away from this team, could he do that to us after seven months? And I think that factors into your thinking, too, about what you give up for him. No, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, he uh, that that extension that Minnesota offered him would be available six months after you acquired him, and he's not going to accept, you know, four years, $100 million. Um, he is, uh, you know, certainly renegotiable. Uh, you can renegotiate his contract, but as Minnesota learned this summer, when you're over the cap, you, you can't go about doing that, and it would take gutting your gutting your roster to do it. And, you know, what I've learned is is that, when you go out and make these type of trades, you're always chasing that trade and you're trying to acquire other pieces to make that player happy. And you're really, um, you're really hurting, um, your roster to do so. I mean, I mean, did the, the Darren Williams, you know, trade back in 2011 and then, you know, a year later to follow it up with Jared Wallace because you're trying to convince Williams to stay I mean, or you're trading multiple draft picks because you're trying to convince that player to stay, um, in, in free agency. And I think that's where, um, you know, that's where the situation in Toronto with Kawhi, um, that Masai's got a good comfort level with that roster there with Kyle Lowry and, um, Serge Ibaka and some of the younger players, um, Delon Wright and Van Vliet, um, Valanchunas, that he doesn't have to go out there and go out and get a Jimmy Butler possibly, um, that he says, I can go to, you know, I can go to battle with these guys that won 59, um, games with Kawhi Leonard, um, and that's a lot different than maybe a, a team like Brooklyn who acquires um, uh, Butler and then says, what other pieces can I go out and get to try to appease this player to make us competitive? And I think that's really where your teams really get themselves in trouble. Today's episode of the Woj Pod is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. There's no cost or commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. They have easy-to-understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. Plus, the Robinhood web platform also lets you view stock collections and analyst ratings of buy, hold, sell for every stock. You can also learn how to invest as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, and track favorite companies with your personalized news feed, and you can have custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Right now, Robinhood is giving my listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So sign up at wogepodcast.robinhood.com. That's wogepodcast.robinhood.com. Bobby, so when you're trying to organize, you're trading the star player, and you're trying to create a marketplace where the offers, you're getting the kind of offers that you want, that they're increasing, that teams feel an urgency to one-up each other, how do you go about doing that? Everybody in the league talks. And I think teams, even who are competing for a player, 
I do think there is some comparing of notes. Teams are able, even if they're not talking to each other, they can find out what someone has offered. It seems to me that in this age, it is hard to fool teams into thinking you have something else. I know Minnesota was telling teams last week, we've got an offer we really, really like. We've got an offer we would do. Nobody believed them. Like nobody <laughs> believed them. And part of the problem for that Minnesota front office is, is one GM executive said to me, in normal circumstances, they're the most difficult in the league to deal with. In normal circumstances, they're usually very unrealistic about what they can get back from you in a deal. Under these circumstances, like they're exponentially difficult to deal with. And I wonder how that cat and mouse game plays out when you're trying to create the marketplace for a player. I think what will happen is that the the regular season will 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 begin to create a better marketplace, possibly for for Minnesota. And I think that's what your hope is. Uh, if you are the the Timberwolves, you you look at what you are trying to accomplish. You kind of want to check the boxes: young players, draft picks, expiring contracts. Are you going to be able to do that? No. But I think it's a lot harder to do a deal in the preseason because, let's face it, all 30 teams, even some of the teams that are projected to finish in the bottom, they all think they have a chance. You know, we're, we're in that, still in a little bit of a honeymoon period where when you get into the regular season, there'll be a couple teams who either have injuries or think they are better than what they are, who maybe lost three or four games here that would maybe want to take an ag- aggressive approach regarding Jimmy Butler, and I think that's what your hope is going to have to be, um, you know, for for the Timberwolves. And it's you know when you when you go about trying to trade in, um, you know, an All Star, and you know, just going back to um, you know Jason back in '07, you it's almost like writing a story. You, you get an outline first, and the outline is basically you're eliminating teams that either are rebuilding or would have no interest, and that and that starts to shrink the the pool there and. Um, you know, fortunately for us that Dallas was, you know, was there to, um, and, and Dallas was really bidding against themselves. <laughs> I mean, they didn't, they're, you know, we, we had tried to engage the Lakers with Andrew Bynum. They didn't want to do that. We had tried to engage the Clippers with Sean Livingston and they didn't want to do that. Um, but it was really, and, and sometimes it just takes a team to think that they are bidding against somebody else, but you're right. I mean, we're in a day and age and we're in 2018 now where the, the information is so out there and teams talk to each other and teams that are not involved in the in the Butler, um, you know, you know, with Jimmy Butler, are are talking to other teams, and that's the issue that Minnesota is running into. And you know, is are are they patient enough to wait until November or December and try to find that team that um, is willing to give up more than than they are right now? And that's going to be. And is Jimmy Butler patient enough? Also, I mean, that's the other that's the other thing because it is it is extreme. A, it's extremely rare for players to get traded before December fifteenth, before the uh, the signing restrictions are lifted. And B, it's extremely rare for an All Star level player to be traded on an expiring contract and to get what the value are looking for right now. Bobby, how compromised can Tom Thibodeau, Scott Layden become, or how compromised are they if teams feel like they can go to the owner and they see a split here? They see that we know there are issues between ownership and Thibodeau. We know that his future is uncertain, to say the least there. You know, we had reported last week when Scott Layden is telling teams when they called, we're not trading him, thanks but no thanks, 
Meanwhile, his owners at the Board of Governors meeting with the owners and executives saying, hey, we're open for business. Like, call my GM if you want to talk about a trade. And if you don't like what you're getting with him or them, call me. And so you had that all going on at once. That can't help the leverage. That doesn't make people say, oh, I I want to offer them more right now. It makes them say, can I get over on the front office, get right to the owner and get this deal done on the cheap? Because maybe he doesn't have the stomach to have this controversy playing out, hanging over his organization. Well, and, and, you know, what's to say that a deal will come through to ownership that they pull the trigger on? And, you know, you have Scott Layden and, 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 you know, Tom Thibodeau there trying to, A, you know, go through, you know, you're in training camp right now and are trying to look at different deals. And, you know, and you have different, you know, sets of principles as far as what you're looking for. And I, this is not how it's supposed to work. <laughs> I mean, this is not the, uh, the, the, the textbook as far as when you're trying to trade a player. It's not your ownership is really your last call, um, from a front office, um, where you are getting that owner to sign off. Um, the owner is not supposed to be bringing you the deals here. And I've been a part of a lot of, uh, you know, Nets teams that have been, had screwed up ownerships. And we've never had, we, you know, from, uh, Mikhail Prokhorov to the Seacaucus 7 in the late 90s, um, this is not how it's supposed to supposed to go. And if you are a team and you are going to Timberwolves ownership, you're not giving them the, the, your best offer. Um, it's just it, that's the that's the truth of it here. And um, and I think that's that is a, the other different. You know, that's part three of this whole story is here that we have got an, an owner who's adamant about trading a player um, and is kind of working. You know, it's, it's like a different team there, um, you know, in conjunction with your with your management group. The one Nets, uh, and I remember reporting on this when I was working at the record in New Jersey, in the aftermath of the Jason Kidd, Stephen Marbury trade, I remember finding out that ownership initially, Rod Thorne went to ownership and said, we have an opportunity to get Jason Kidd for Marbury. And Marbury had had a very turbulent first few months with the Nets, as you know, Bobby, there was lots of issues around him. And I think the basketball people said, how do we get out from under him? This isn't going to work out. But I think ownership thought, hey, we've got this, you know, New York City, he was a New York icon and he was coming home and he was, you know, he wanted to play for the Nets and you were going to sign him to an extension. And Rod Thorne knew we aren't winning with this guy. And Jason Kidd's available because of the domestic violence issue that had come up in Phoenix. They felt like they had to trade him. And as I remember it, and I remember reporting, ownership told them no. And I don't even think that group at the time really even knew who Jason Kidd was. I don't think they knew. They didn't know the NBA very well. It was Lewis Katz and Lou Lamarillo, who had come in to oversee. They had that Yankee Nets partnership, and he was running the Devils, and now he was overseeing the Nets too. And... People obviously know Lou as one of the great hockey executives ever. I think he's one of the great sports executives ever. And Lou's connection to basketball was kind of interesting, right? He had hired Rick Pitino at Providence as the athletic director. He was the AD at Providence, hired Pitino, who was a Knicks assistant at the time. And as the story goes, when Rod wanted to do the trade, he was kind of shut down on it. Lou Lamarillo went to ownership and said, if your basketball people want to do this trade, you need to let them do it. And ownership relented and the Jason Kidd trade happens and it transforms the organization. Uh, that to me was as unique of a circumstances I remember covering because 
on the surface, basketball people said this is a no-brainer, but the owners really were looking at it more from a marketing point of view. They they thought Stephen Marbury was going to put people in the empty Meadowlands. Well, and that's going back to Minnesota, where you know the role of your your front office is is that you hire them and you trust them to make basketball decisions. You know the the owners. You know, bought the team because he made a lot of money somewhere else. <laughs> he didn't make a lot of money, you know, from the investment in that, in that team. And yeah, I mean, back in, in, in 2001, we had Stefan Marbury coming off an all-star year. We had won 26, 27 games. Byron Scott was in year one. Um, and we had a, our, our dynamics in New Jersey were very different than other teams where we did, we had that Yankee Nets partnership with, and the Devils were involved and Lou Lamorell oversaw basketball operations um and had a basketball background although he was in hockey um he was great for us but he you know he drove the business side crazy <laughs> um but you know kid was coming off the um the domestic violence incident in uh, phoenix um he, Mar- they felt marbury could sell tickets um we had a lot of young players with uh, Kenyon martin and Kerry kittles was coming off injury keith van horn and we had gotten to the two yard line in our um, you know, somewhat of a new ownership group with, um, you know, Ray Chambers, Lewis Katz, Finn Wentworth did not want to do that. And you're right. Lou Lamorella pushed the, you know, pushed the, uh, you know, got it into the end zone there and, and gave Rod carte blanche to go out and, um, do a deal. And, you know, you have that type of ownership group. You have, you know, as I said, you know, I was involved in the, we called them the Seacaucus seven back in the nineties, the where it was a group of seven businessmen from Seacaucus, you know, in the Seacaucus area. It all had, you know, 12% of the team. And, and whenever we, whenever Willis Reed would get, have a trade to, to do, he'd have to go to this group and they'd have to vote on it. So <laughs> the hard part is that you can never, you could never find these guys. <laughs> so if you have a deal on the table and you talk to a team, let's say Houston at 11 a.m., well, now, you know, now you, you know, by an hour, you, you'll give them an answer. Then it would be like at six o'clock at night. Because these guys would have to vote or some guys would be out of the country and, um, they were great guys, but we were never aligned there. Um, and that was, that, you know, that was the Secaucus seven there. And, um, Bobby, who, who came up with the name Secaucus seven? You know what? I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it, it was it might have been, I think it might have been Philip Bondi from the Daily News. Great. I think it might have been Philip or Harvey Araton. I do know that the exit 16 W Nets was Bob Ryan. <laughs> Bob Ryan came up with the exit 16 W Nets, which if you drive the Jersey Turnpike, you know the Meadowlands is at exit 16 W. Um, yeah, the Secaucus 7. Support for the Woj Pod comes from Rocket Mortgage at Quicken Loans, America's premier home purchase lender. Let's talk about buying a home. It could be one of the most important purchases you'll ever make. But today's fluctuating interest rates can leave you with unexpected higher payments, which can turn a great experience into an anxious one. That's why Quicken Loans created their exclusive power buying process. And here's how it works. They check your income, assets, and credit to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer, making your offer more attractive to sellers. Once verified, you qualify for their exclusive rate shield approval. They'll lock your interest rate for up to 90 days while you shop for your new home. Then, once you've found the one, if rates have gone up, your rate stays the same. But if rates have gone down, you can keep that new lower rate. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. 
To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumer.org number 3030. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Woj. So when you started, Bobby, with the Nets, you were an intern for Willis, right? Willis, was that was your first entry into the NBA was you were an intern. I think you started maybe on PR side and then you moved over and you worked for Willis Reed. Yeah, Willis was my first, uh, was my first boss. And, um, you know, I, I think I've told you this before this is that we, you know, back then, you know, we didn't have computers <laughs> and, you know, the day and age of finding transactions on Twitter or social media or wherever didn't exist. And we, there was a room in, um, in our offices on Murray Hill Parkway where there was a, um, there was like a computer interface and that's where the transactions would come in. You would check the computer at, in the morning and at night and it would be like, you know, it'd be like there'd be pieces of paper on the floor and you would check. That's how you would find out if players were signed or not. Um, and that's, that was, you know, that was, you know, 23 years ago, but a quick, you know, Seacock a seven story, you know, I used to drive these guys home after when we'd have meetings at, um, in East Rutherford and they were great guys. I mean, they were just, just, you know, we were just dysfunctional and David Gerstein who was one of our owners. He lived in short Hills and I would have to drive him home, but it would, it got to the point where, you know, David would, we didn't have GPS back then. David, we, we would, uh, you know, he would not remember where he lit, you know, the exact street address. And basically what we'd have to do is he was an avid runner. We would have to, um, um, do the, do the, um, go back and do what his course was, his, where he would run. And that would dictate as far as how we, I would get David Gerstein home by basically his running route in the morning. And that was a common theme as far as, you know, and that was probably every other week as far as to get him, to get him home just because, um, yeah, you know, we didn't have GPS back then. Yeah. The NBA has changed and, and, uh, <laughs> the way this will play out, Bobby, in Minnesota now, I just think that San Antonio was very patient and I think they, you never get everything you want in a deal, but they did want a star player back. They wanted a player who they could plug in and they hoped would keep them in the playoffs, would keep them relevant. And they got an all-star in his twenties. You know, DeMar DeRozan was coming off really one of his, probably his best season in the league. And that kind of player wasn't available to them uh, really anywhere else. And the, the Toronto deal emerged. They did it. I think with Butler, the kind of deal that Thibodeau imagines where he gets a player who could, in the short term, help him get back to the playoffs, a really good player who you plug in, I really don't know that that is going to become available for them. I just think the market, I think there's enough uncertainty around his future. He's not Kawhi Leonard. And at some point, they're going to have to settle for something they're not going to love. And the question is, <laughs> do you settle now or do you just wait this out and hope that something emerges that right now you feel like if they're being honest with themselves, probably is not going to emerge. Well, and the other thing that they're, you know, they're running into an issue with too is, is that it's the, it's the perfect storm where we're going to have 200 plus players on who are going to be free agents this summer in 2019. So 
the likelihood is that you are acquiring a player that isn't expiring. <laughs> so that player probably will not be there, even if it is a good good player. Um, and we also the market still flooded from 2016, where there are a lot of um, there are a lot of not desirable contracts out there. The, even even the summer of uh, of 17, where the Dion Waiters and the Kelly Olynyk and the James Johnson players that have long term um, long long term contracts. So um, the the reality is that you're not going to be able to check the boxes that maybe San Antonio was able to do where you got a DeMar DeRozan on multiple years and is an all-star. You got a young player in, in Yacoporto and you got a draft pick. Um, that, that situation is not going to, uh, I don't think bear fruit with, uh, with, uh, Minnesota just based on what, you know, how you look at teams like Houston, you mentioned, um, uh, Miami, um, you know, maybe does it get to a point that this Heat team struggles and maybe Pat Riley, who's, you know, has, is always very aggressive with, um, you know, going after star players, but it's going to take him to, to get rid of a player like Josh Richardson. And I don't think if you're Miami, you, you know, you would want to do something like that. Um, so to, to get a good player like Butler, you're going to have to give up something. But as I said, you've got, you know, half the league is, uh, you know, is going to be free agents and there's a good chunk that are still not on great contracts that have, you know, two or three years left. And Bobby, when you have to get third and sometimes fourth teams involved, you know, there comes a point where a team says, okay, you're looking for maybe it's an expiring contract or you want a draft pick. My team doesn't have it, but let me see if I can get you this thing you're looking for somewhere else and that's where a third it might be they want to get Gorgie Deng's contract off okay can we go to Sacramento when they have cap space are we willing to each throw a pick in to Sacramento to fulfill and one of us gives us first and the other gives a second or two seconds whatever it's going to be what is it like trying to organize that from your end I know you did a lot of that in Brooklyn and New Jersey where you would you know teams are calling you to offer some things you're trying to scour rosters and assets that teams have and figure out where is a potential partner here to go out and do that. How complicated does it become? Like they always feel like those trades are sort of like a house of cards and they just kind of, usually they just all (laughs) topple down, right? Like very few of them ever come to fruition, but, but it probably in this scenario, I, I think that's going to be a part of it for Minnesota if they're able to get a trade. They are hard, really hard. You hit it right on the head as far as the, you build it up with the, the card tower and then you pull one out and it, the whole thing, uh, dissolves. And the, the hard part is, is that it's hard enough to do a trade because you've got your own, you've got your front office dealing with the other team's front office. Then you've got to get it to, again, you have to bring it to ownership and to have them sign off. Now you're getting, now you are involving another team, a third team, where if it's a team like Sacramento, let's say, um, and, you know, there's a different layer there where you think you might have an agreement in place with all three front offices. And then they say, you know, I need to check with my owner. Well, my owner wants a, a second round pick tra- uh, thrown in. And, and you wrote a great story back in at the trade deadline when with Utah and Cleveland, I think Sacramento, when all that trade, you know, the um, I think the Shumpert trade um, there, uh, Rodney Hood, and how hard it was to get, you know, all te- all three, you know, three or four teams on 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 board and i think it's great you know for from a um you know to from a fantasy standpoint and you know to try to get as many players involved and teams involved but the reality is that it is extremely hard to pull off a um you know three or four teams just because 
to get everyone on the same page or aligned um, is extremely difficult. And I think where you're looking right now is um, Sacramento's the lone team out there that has cap space. There's not, you know, we're not in a, you know, there's not four or five teams out there that can, you know, that can be a, you know, a dead end for some of these uh, contracts that maybe uh, Minnesota doesn't want or, or Miami doesn't want. Um, and I think that's where you're going to have a hard time with, uh, you know, getting a third or fourth team involved. When did the term cap relief start coming into play? <laughs> like, no, was there a point where when you did trades, you never thought about attaching a bad contract to them? Or was that always part? It feels like that's been a thing more in the last 10 years, more or less seven or eight years. Or was there always... When you think of deals early on in your tenure with the Nets, was there a time that wasn't in the conversation? The hot name was expiring contracts. That was the hot. That was the hot name. I want to say probably around like 2010. And um, but what happened was that expiring contracts didn't really have much value anymore. Um, you know, to take back. And we had gone through that with with Chris Humphreys two years in a row. We we're we signed Chris to like a twelve, a one-year, twelve million-dollar contract. Um, you know, you know, one-year, eight million-dollar contract because we we felt that the value of an expiring contract was there, and it it really wasn't. I mean, he eventually was traded to, you know, part of that that Boston trade. But I I think too is that we're in a day and age that teams have put so much premium on cap space, and I think you know, as you know, cap space is a little bit of fool's gold there. Um, because you're not always going to go out and get that player that you have ranked one, two, three, or four in free agency there. And then what do you do with that? Now you're going back to signing one year guys again. And, um, so I, I think where, you know, the, the cap relief slash, um, expiring contracts is, you know, something that kind of came to the forefront in, in, you know, 2009, 2010. And now, um, you know, nowadays that where the cap is going, it's going to be, you know, it, it will get to a point where it's going to be so high again in 2000, um, you know, next year it's 109 and then it goes to 116, um, that the, the ca- these contracts will just come off the books. You won't, you know, you'll get your cap relief without even, you know, you won't have to make a trade to get that cap relief. Well, this story, I don't think it's going away anytime soon, unless Glenn Taylor, the owner just says, I'm taking this over. I'm going to do a deal. I think that's how this thing ends quickly or otherwise I think it plays out. And then as you said earlier, there's decisions to make about Jimmy Butler reporting. Is he going to play? How does he fit back into the team if he does that? So this is certainly a story that like it gets us through the preseason. Like I always say, like <laughs> the NBA preseason is the most 